Aging School Psych Podcast. Thank you for so much for joining us tonight. We're excited uh, to have this conversation. My name is Rachel. I am a school psychologist and I'm in Maryland. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell everybody how to participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. And um, you can participate tonight if you're watching us live by signing into your Google YouTube account. Um, and just uh, commenting right in the chat next to the video. These videos do remain on our School Psych Podcast YouTube page. So if you'd like to send a more private question or message, um, please feel free to inbox us at on Facebook at School Psych Podcast Facebook page or the School Psych Your School Psychologist page or on Twitter um, at at Podcast Psych and use the hashtag like podcast. I'll be looking for notifications. And even if you are listening or watching later in the week and not live, please feel free to comment and ask questions because we look for those threads of conversation throughout the week. And we can probably even get some more questions to Jill if, uh, if, if, you, are, um, if you have a question that we can um, answer, that she can answer for us. So one thing before we get started, I wanted to thank our sponsor. Um, it's a, uh, we want to take a quick break to talk about med travelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental to finding placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That's why we're proud to partner with Med Travelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status, along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options. Med Travelers is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about med travelers and to discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school site. Thank you. And I'm going to pass it off to Eric. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. Hello, everyone. We are excited to speak this evening with Jill Violet. And she is an author, entrepreneur, college professor, uh, all, <laughs> all kinds of things. Um, and her new book, uh, Why Play Works, Big Changes Start Small, um, offers up some suggestions and possibilities that play may be one of the solutions to help us grapple with some of the concerns and problems that we're, we're facing in our schools and in our society um, with bouncing back from this pandemic and learning to relax and grow and uh, develop. So we're excited to speak with Jill today. Uh, just a little bit about Jill real quick. Um, she is an accomplished social entrepreneur, author, and public speaker. She's the co-founder of Oakland's Museum of Children's Art and the founder of Playworks, a national nonprofit committed to bringing out the best in students by leveraging the power of play. In 2006, she was a fellow at Stanford's Hasso uh, Plattner Institute of Design and uh, as a result, co-founded Substantial, to redesign the way that schools and districts recruit, train, and support sub substitute teaching, which I think will be interesting to ask you a little about this evening as well. Uh, but Jill, tell us about your book. Tell us a little about play. How can play help us? Yeah, uh, so the book is called Why Play Works, Big Changes Start Small. And um, I actually wrote it during the pandemic um, partly as a mental health strategy to, to, to take care of myself and to make sense of just everything that was going on in the world around me when uh, 
when the pandemic hit back in March, uh, Playworks was in all these schools across the country, had this big staff and um, like 510 people across the country. And um, with the schools shutting down and our budget relying so much on, on school uh, you know, fees and stuff, we kind of, everything came to a screeching halt. And so when we contracted for last year, we got, we went down to about 210 staff to sort of navigate the sort of uncertain waters. I included myself in those layoffs and um, wanted just to sort of take stock of the lessons learned over 25 years of running play programs in schools across the country and to figure out like what were the big lessons that were super applicable in this moment of uh, dealing with sort of all the, the, the concerns and worry and um, sort of the need to navigate risk and, um, and sort of address people's traumas and to also uh, um, really come to terms with this moment of racial reckoning in the country and to sort of um, what might we, how might we uh, really turn to play as this incredible opportunity for building trust and rapport that enabled the kind of conversations and uh, interactions that would help us, you know, manage this moment. That's, I can't imagine how that was in the beginning. It must have been yeah. so frightening. But when I think about those, like, early days of school closure and organizing, you know, full days of schoolwork remotely, you know, I remember as a school thinking about, well, how do we give them movement breaks that are fun? And, like, how do, how do we make it more enjoyable for young children? Because... Yeah. It was such a you know two dimensional thing, and uh, so Playworks really did find ways to do some remote playing. We did, and I I think um, our staff, it, a lot of the staff, especially the folks who work as coaches in the schools, um, they really are of the generation of digital natives. So their pivot, um, in in some ways, was I think much more. Uh, innate than mine. <laughs> I was a little more like, wah. Um, and that, but they, we were like running, suddenly we were running these like giant uh, recesses on Facebook and um, through Facebook Live. And, and we were working with school partners to sort of say, how can we support you? Like, what, like, it's funny working on play in schools, we've sometimes had to be really like, um, vigilance sort of too harsh a word, but like pretty hardcore about like, no, no, no like, because if you're in a school and you're like, you know, enthusiastic, and I'm sure this happens with school psychologists, but people like ask you, oh, could you also do this? And like, and you gotta be like, no, 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 I gotta, I gotta stay over here and do like, I gotta do my school psychology thing. Similarly with, and, and, and obviously very differently, but like with, if you're the recess people or the play people at schools, they're like, oh, could you also like do X, Y, Z? And, um, and, and in general, I think partly we've built a great program by being sort of super focused and like, no, 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 this is what we do. We do it better than anybody else. And, and, and we are insistent that this will make everybody else stronger and better. But in this moment, when, when, when everything was just like, ah, <laughs> we were much more like, okay, how can we help? What, what's the most useful way that we can support? And not just the kids, but all the grownups who were also dealing with all the trauma and everything else going on. So. Sure. Maybe we can um, go back to the very beginning. In reading your introduction, I was really struck by how you described um, the way you kind of entered the play world and, and how you were first charged with helping a, a school fix play. And yeah. the, um, the teacher said to you something like, 
the kids are always fighting and the teachers are worried about risk taking behaviors and kids getting hurt. Then it comes back into the classroom and it's just a disaster. And then there were some schools that didn't have recess at all, that the kids just didn't know how to play. Um, and so how, I think that the school psychologists, we um, think a lot about social emotional learning, relationship skills and communication skills and um, um, intra and interpersonal skills for kids. Um, and so when we're thinking about the value of those downtimes for kids, we, we can really see how having successful play time, play periods, recess periods, or breaks for older kids, however you want to call it, mm -hmm. is, can be so valuable, you know, um, to our upstream concerns about how, how they feel in the classroom, how they function in the classroom and how they do in school. How, how did you, how do you see the challenges that you originally were trying to address with these, those schools um, and play? And today, I think the pandemic has made kids skills different or maybe even yeah. um, delayed because we did hit pause in a lot of ways on, on kids being social with each other. So what do you yeah. know about kids in play right now? Well, so I would just say flashing back, I think with, with that one, that the sort of that uh, in, in sort of that inception moment where the principal said, can't you do something? Can't, one of the things that she said that was most striking um, just feels super relevant. And it was about kids identity. And she was talking about these young boys who, because they were getting in trouble at recess a couple of times a week, that it was actually having this profound impact on their identity and that they were starting to see themselves as bad kids. And that was the thing that really struck me that she, she was just distraught at this, like that she, that unwittingly they were contributing to this, um, this sort of shift if, really in a super negative way for these kids in their identity. And that was the last thing she wanted. And so that was really what, what sort of compelled her to like, just beg me to like try and be her partner and figuring out how to fix it. And, and and those conditions still exist, right? Like, you know, the, the truth is that our educators are being held accountable to this very sort of narrow set of standards, the things they're being held accountable to, and um, they're being asked to, to, you know, do more with less almost every day. And so they're put in, in these almost impossible situations. And when kids are dealing with whatever issues that they are like dealing with and all of us are dealing with something right like it's just it's inevitable but um not having the latitude to be able to like focus on a child who is clearly calling out for attention like and like that just puts people adults who get into this work because they care about kids and they care about teaching and learning it puts them in an almost impossible situation and so um, infusing play into those moments while it feels almost counterintuitive, right? Like, ah, we don't have enough time to do all the things we have to do. Like how, how could we possibly add what, what we found in fact is that it's, it's exactly the opposite that actually making the space and time to infuse the, um, those sort of the, these interstitial moments, right? Whether they're recess or being on the school bus or passing between classes or this before and after school, like all these, there are all these moments, right? When it's not exclusively about classroom instruction, but where the the learning in the sort of most kind of dewy informal education sense uh, can happen. And, and that it's not that you have to like, overly control it, 
but um, it does feel like it's important to intentionally design those moments so that students can be um, brought in and, and uh, as sort of co-designers and, and leaders and drivers of their own education. And, and I think for me, that's one of the most amazing and important sort of um, opportunities that this moment presents as we are reopening schools is, um, and I think that play can be super instructive is how do we invite um, not just uh, the kids, but their families and, and educators themselves, frankly, to be, um, uh, I mean, all the people at schools, how do we invite people to participate as sort of co-creators of our educational environment, like, and the educational experiences and, and the environment and, 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 and to really own how it feels. I really like how um, that concept of the, you know, tweaking the environment and considering the environment and what maybe what's wrong with the environment in comparison to what's wrong with the kid. And we've talked about that a couple of times here, uh, you know, on the podcast that as school psychologists and as teachers and educators, sometimes, you know, we're like, okay, what's the disability? What's the label? What's the diagnosis? And instead of, you know, what's, <laughs> you know, looking at like core, like what can we do differently for all the kids to, to reach them and to make changes? What, what, what are we, what do we need to change instead of what do they need to change? Yeah. There's a great exercise in design that you do called assumption storming. And um, so you list out all your assumptions about how school works, that there's one teacher, that the, you know you do you study one class at a time, that kids sit in desks, that they have to wait to be called on. And then going through um, and, and then just stating the opposite of what your assumption is, like, oh, there are multiple teachers in a classroom and that actually kids decide who talks when, or, you know, you stand in a classroom or like, and like, not that the, the, the negatives are necessarily right, but like, it just actually realizes like, so much of our um, thinking about how schools work is pretty calcified from, you know, whatever it was that we lived through. <laughs> That's that's a that's such an interesting exercise. I almost want <laughs> to my teachers because it could be a fun like backwards play or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, structured versus unstructured, the supervised aspects of those yeah. play moments versus having kids have more autonomy in them. And yeah. how does playworks address that, or or how do you think? schools can best balance that? Yeah, well, I'd say like first off, and I, I try and do this in the book, right? Um, I think taking a step back and, and making a pass at defining play is a super useful thing, right? And like, what are the, and, and Playworks, we've tried to do this ourselves. Like, like what are the deal breakers for us? Like what counts as play and like, how, how do you? And so I tend to have a very um, large, like big umbrella, big tent, sort of uh, inclusive definition of, of, of play. But one of the sort of non-negotiables for me is uh, volition and choice. That like it ha kids have to be choosing it for it to count, or grownups too, like, but you have to be choosing it for it to count as play. And so um, I just say that because I think it's uh, critical in the sort of discussion about structured versus unstructured and um, autonomous versus supervised. With Playworks, what we are generally doing um, is offering a lot of sort of supervised play opportunities. And, and we can talk more about that. Um, we also are creating space for autonomous play opportunities. And we are like, we are fierce defenders of the kids' right to like 
go off and like stare at the sky for a chunk of time. Like, yes, totally counts. Important strategic well-being is like, yes. Um, and we also see uh, recess as a moment when having grown-ups norming the behaviors that we want to see around inclusion and kindness and just basic stuff that like um, creates social mores that will be carried off into becoming a high functioning citizen. Like, right. Like taking turns, self handicapping, like, you know, uh, you know, Eric and Rebecca, you switch teams like to make them more even like that's a fairly nuanced, like um, understanding of competition and the fact that we all have to be having a, a modicum of fun to keep the game going. And like in this moment, in a world that is so polarized, um, really, I think having play opportunities where there are caring, consistent grown-ups norming the importance of like figuring out how to respectfully compete and to like and to engage and and absolutely to have your interest pitted against their interest, like right, like one person's gonna win, like or or one team's gonna win. And that doesn't mean that you hate them or think that they are evil, bad people, like that there is another way. Um, and I think that, that that's, a, that's something that you learn early on. And that, you know, I think anytime we see kids behaving in ways in which they are running counter to these kind of social norms, whether that's bullying or exclusionary behaviors, all the different ways it manifests, there's reason to believe that some kind of grown-up structure has been set up that is conducive to that, or um, that the the ways that would discourage those behaviors hasn't been adequately attended to. And I, because they're kids, right? They're they're always responding to us in the situations and environments we put them in. I really like, you know, just what I'm hearing. There's so much Piaget in what you're. Yeah you're talking about i just yeah. love this yeah um, you know it's very developmental from its yeah. perspective which of course we get drilled into developmental <laughs> theories and the human development and um so I, i'm really just fascinated with um just the idea of play you know we all think of it as as yeah. educators as there's value in play but now we're really talking about the value in play much yeah. more tangibly than you know <laughs> I write in the very first part, in the first part of the book, I do try and do a very non-academic-y um, sort of survey of play theory and science, just because I got into this, like I grew up playing every day outside after school, like either in the neighborhood with the older kids kind of helping us like get the games together or making us do rock, paper, scissors to resolve conflicts or, you know, or at recess or in, in the after school program at the Macomb Street playground, you know, like I had a very, uh, play-rich childhood. And so um, I, I was somewhat like shocked when I was out in schools and seeing schools where recess was, like there's good chaos and there's bad chaos. And at a lot of the recesses, I was seeing this kind of chaos that was like, ah, that can't be fun. Or I was going to schools like when we first started talking to folks in Baltimore and there were all these schools where we were visiting and there was no, they eliminated recess because they decided it was too dangerous. and. Anyway, but I go through, um, I talk about Piaget and I, but even with Piaget, like it's interesting because Piaget had, there was a definitely, um, there were some forms of play that Piaget thought were more virtuous and, you know, of worth than others. And I, 
And people have very strong feelings about um, play. Like it's a, it's a nostalgia, and then politics comes into it. I've been called both a vanguard of the um, Obama nanny state, and also, you know, a, a recess fascist by the left. I mean, like I, you know, so I'm like, wow. And I think most humans, though, um, in terms of thinking about play and valuing play, fall somewhere in the middle. Like, right? They think we should get to play every day. They worry about academics. Um, they, they want their kids to have some competition. They also want their kids not to like have their feelings trampled and like in navigating all that because um, we're humans is messy. Yeah, speaking of feelings being trampled, we we had um, a colleague friend of yours, uh, Lenora Skenazi, on um, for our podcast a few weeks ago, and we were talking about kind of this reflex or instinct that we adults have to protect kids from the things that not only might hurt them physically, but might hurt their feelings. And and then as we all think about the rise in childhood anxiety um, and social anxiety, I feel like we can see the reflections of both these shifts at recess, you know, kids feeling, um, and and I think maybe even especially with masks and COVID, kids just feeling awkward, you know, is what I hear about. I don't, I'm not sure who to play with, I, I, you know, and, you know, just kind of trying to, I don't know, get that 15 minutes over, over with. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it makes me think about, when I think about that, um, especially middle school and high school kids who are not as natural at play. You know, our middle school kids absolutely have recess, but it's it has a very different energy to it. It's more about sports. Um, what do you notice in the differences of, of, in age groups in their play? Yeah. Well, and I do, I mean, I, what I've noticed is when one, when one works to create uh, opportunities for play, and 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 games and sports are of a form of play, but I think um, creating a breadth of opportunities for play, um, you know, also for things that don't necessarily have quite as much of a competition element, but just other um, other just activities that can be uh, in, engaging, sort of more. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, they're just there's sort of the various cooperative games you can sort of like, I have found that while there might be some resistance, um, actually inviting students to be leaders of these activities, um, inviting them in to create opportunities to to do alternative things, tournaments and stuff. Um, I just think it's, it's again, it's that choice thing. And the, especially as people get older. And this is true for grownups. And I would say um, organizational development experiences, like like people, grownups, and like the fear of the really terrible, janky, like awkward offsite, you know, sort of just team building activities for grownups, like, right? Um, the key, the older we get, I think, but even for the littlest is, is making sure that people have choice and voice in their in the, in the participation. So um, the, I think, and the more explicitly you do this and the more you actually turn over responsibility for creating and driving the opportunities, um, the more you invite people to own it and to to create the environments in which they are most likely to succeed. But I, I do think that it's, 
It's just about um, our developmental ability to handle agency. And the older we get, the more we justifiably would like to have control over how we spend our time. And I think respecting that and, um, and instead of um, focusing on control and, and looking at the sort of reimagining it as a kind of a co-design, as, as an opportunity to actually seed power and to like really um, invite students to be drivers of their own education, that play is a moment where that is really quite doable. I like that and I like the concept of choice. I have a kind of negative memories of recess time in middle school being in like eighth grade and it was required and they would mm -hmm. just kind of shove us outside and you know, so it ended up just kind of little groups of students, like especially in the cold, like <laughs> we were freezing, huddling yeah. together in the cold. It was just an open field. There was nothing there. And we would just like count down and told sometimes like hang out by the doors. Like when are they gonna let us back in? We're dying here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it can, um, if not given a choice and you feel like you're just, you know, yeah. just thrown into it, that would not be. <laughs> yeah, I think the combination of, of of choice, like, and like creating opportunities for kids to do stuff inside, like, like that's, that feels right. And like, and, and using it as a, as a moment to experiment and play with trust and like, right. And, uh, and like, even like, you know, just I was saying that the assumption storming, like, that's a game of sorts, like, right? Like you could be creating all sorts of different activities or creating opportunities for the students to embrace different activities that could happen, that can happen during recess and probably should be happening during recess, right? I'm thinking, so what would be, what would you say is kind of the first step if we wanted to, as school psychologists, make some suggestions for overhauling, you know, what's going on? It's funny because I was just working on a functional behavior assessment with, with one of my teens in my schools um, and the kid struggles most at recess, you know, that's yeah. where all the problems are. And so, yeah, if, I, if we were to say, okay, let's, let's incorporate some of, some of these concepts, where would be a starting point for a school that has not done anything like that before? Yeah, I think one place to start that sort of um, people are like, oh, that's interesting, is is with mapping the yard, like, and really actually drawing, which I know makes a lot of grownups super uncomfortable, like, but I, I'm like going to the visual, like it's an incredible leveler, right? Like the power dynamic when you start to draw is really sort of fascinating because the school principal could be just as anxious about drawing as the, the second grader, right? Like, or like less anxious, you know, or like more anxious than the second grader. Like it's a great, so that's it. But um, creating a sort of a, a loose map um, of the yard and, and then having different, having people participate by like noting um, what activities happen where, um, identifying like how things look different over time. You can use different colors and like different ways to like super creative mapping exercise though. And like, and then pointing out where are like, um, where are, you know, choke points and where are activities where nothing's happening and like what's missing. And like that, so mapping the yard, both in terms of the activities, but over time um, is just an interesting, like, oh, that's really interesting. I had never really thought like, this is where the kids come out at, from lunch to go to recess. And we could do something right here. There's a, there's a, a choke point right here where like they all, they're going through that narrow doorway um, or in this area doesn't get used at all. We could create a, you know, a game of the week here. So that's a first great sort of activity um, is mapping the yard just to get people 
talking about it. And, um, and again, just, I, I think I've been now I'm a little bit stuck in this sort of assumptions thing, but like, it's not fixed just because you've always done it this way doesn't mean it has to be. And if it feels badly, you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't feel good, you know, you can actually, you can shift it. And so the mapping I think makes begins to make that possible. The second thing I often um, recommend too is, is like become a um, huge proponent of rock, paper, scissors as the universal problem solver school-wide and like, you know, I think school psychologists suddenly throwing out Rochambeau, like, um, could be just a really good, like, leaderly moment, whether it's with other grown-ups or, like, two kids are, like, arguing about something. I mean, 97.8% of the conflicts are completely, you know, like, insignificant. And, and Rochambeau means that for those conflicts that actually deserve and merit our attention, there's a little more air and space and energy to address them. So those would be my two like first steps. Those are great steps. It, it makes me think about when my children were young, <laughs> I have four kids and they're within five years. So when they were little, I had this uh, little half basement. And that's what I did as a, as a, at this time, a graduate student, I mapped spaces. I had the art table. I had the a bookshelf with the books and I put like little cushions there so we could sit and read. And I made almost like stations, like in a classroom. And to think about doing that outside is really cool. It's really liberating. And to have a game of the week area, that's really fun too. Um, and I would just say, and you all know more about this than I do for sure, but um, Nadine Burke Harris, who's the Surgeon General in California, came out to visit a playwork school um, before she was Surgeon General and she was just doing more work around adverse childhood experiences. And she was watching and, and we do exactly that with like, it's all mapped out and um, we're in kids and it's it's sort of established and we use, we're big fans of chalk. And if you're in you know, Minnesota and the snowy Kool-Aid actually turns out to be a non-toxic way to mark out things on the snow. You know? So there are all these ways, right? But um, <laughs> But Nadine commented at the time, she said, you know, if you were going to design an intervention for kids who've experienced a lot of adverse childhood experiences, this, uh, this format you have where things are mapped out and they know what to expect and there's just huge amount of visibility into what's happening next and what the, and like, we, and we often like, we'll put a cone out if, a gift, if we're introducing a new game with all the rules really clearly stated. And we, we often, we encourage people when they're starting a new game Always, even if you think you've gone over the rules a bazillion times, really quickly, just go through the rules because it it brings, it tamps down people's anxiety about not knowing. And if there's somebody who's new to school, they just transferred in, or if there's someone who's like an English language, English language learner, and they're just not as clear on what was, how it works, like just always starting off from the most generous standpoint of sharing as much information so that everybody feels like they have as much control as they possibly can over the situation at hand, at least for these 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, anyway, that feels, th th so the mapping is part of that for sure. Tell me a little bit about your coaches. How, how do you, how many coaches do you typically recommend per size of grade or, or group? Yeah. And, and, and who are they? <laughs> how, yeah. how are they? Well, so, um, so Playworks over the years has really uh, evolved and um, we could talk more about evaluation, um, uh, but I, I think um, one of the things we have, when we first got going, our assumption was like we had, we had one coach per school 
and like, and on some level we were like, every school should have a coach. Like that's the best possible thing. But over the years, after we did more evaluation, we came to understand actually that um, in fact, schools are, are, you know, it's a spectrum of where they are and what they need. And so the best possible programming we could provide to any given school was uh, required first that we understand how is their recess currently. And, and in fact, we worked with a, a researcher at Oregon State, Will Massey, and we developed this great recess framework, which is an observational tool that um, we can use and, and schools can use. And we have a lighter version called the recess checkup where schools can kind of self-assess how they are and what they need. And then based on that, then you figure out, oh, okay, like, wow, things are pretty rough, rough here. You need a full-time coach. But more often, what you really need is someone who comes in once a week and works with the staff who are handling recess and supports them and um, models some different uh, strategies and is like just giving a little bit of relief and vision about like, cause that bridge between getting trained to do something and actually doing something, that's the hardest, like that, that no person's land in between the being trained and the implementation, like, so providing support in that way. And then some schools really just need some training and then other schools, we have a, um, an online sort of uh, subscription service where we're just giving people games and some ideas and strategies called Playworks U. Uh, and so that, that spectrum of, um, that spectrum of services and then right sizing the, the dosage of the intervention to what the school needs. Because if you give somebody a full-time coach, when they actually already have staff who are really great, those staff will drift away from doing it, which is the last thing you want to do, right? You want people who already get it um, and care about play to be having what they need to make play happen. Cause then that comes back into the classroom and it just has this really sort of exponential impact on the school, whole school climate. So that one code, so it's, that was sort of a, a non-answer to your question, but it like, it, it depends. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It just makes so much sense, you know, when, when I think about, I'm in several schools sometimes uh, in my district and uh, everybody does recess differently. So yeah. um, some folks are super engaged and, uh, you know, adults um, sort of monitoring and directing or some are overly engaged and then some are perhaps too standoffish. So I think just just having a little direction, yeah. uh, I think, will alleviate everyone's anxiety. You know, yeah. I'm sure the adults yeah. are, you know, worried about the fighting and, you know, and, oh, yeah. and, and structure. And we, we laugh because there's often like our, our process for hiring coaches is we like we, that we have them run games for other adults besides doing the regular interview process and all that stuff. But, and we'll have people and they go through training and they're all good. And then when you actually get out onto a schoolyard with a, like a couple of hundred kids, potentially, like you can see the sort of deer in the headlight, like, uh oh, and then other people like their tail just starts to wag. They're like, this is exactly where I was born to be. And like, and everything in between, right? But those those two responses are like, oh, okay. You know, you wanna hire more tail waggers than deer in the headlight, but like, okay. And the deer in the headlight can often be brought into like a place of greater ease, so. <laughs> One thing I, I just wanted to add, going back to the rock, paper, scissors, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> Um, sometimes, you know, a, a big part of some of what we end up doing is conflict resolution. Yeah. And it's, I think things like that really become objective. 
And so the kids sort of trust the almighty rock, paper, scissors, you know, yeah. rough of the draw and, and lose some of perhaps what was that edge or competitiveness or argumentativeness. I, I think that's just great because, oh, okay. Yeah, right. that's it. You know? No, it does have this divine intervention quality. Yes. And and also like it and it it's it, it saves face. Like mm-hmm. it's just there's so many aspects about it that are redeeming. I was yeah. on actually, I was on a I, I like to tell the story. I was on a Southwest flight. And I don't know if you like, and they're this, the two seater part, you know, that the love seats there on the south. For those of you who fly southwest, I'm sorry, I wish they were one of your sponsors. Um, I was going in and I was putting my bag up to sit, and this dude swooped in and took the seat that I was about to sit in. And the steward looked at me like, with just like, oh, what's going to happen, you know? And I like turned to the guy, I'm like, hey, I was going to sit there. And the guy was like, sorry, like little, you know, not great social skills. And I like, I was like, all right, rock, paper, scissors. And I like put, I, I like, and the guy looks at me like, what? And you know, I'm a full on grown woman. And I think I was actually wearing a suit. I like looked like really like, and I was like, no, come on, let's go. And at this point, like everybody on the plane who's already boarded is like turning and, and looking at us. And so we go and I, I beat him you know, because karma, I know it's, it's it, yeah, all things be equal, but karma does, you know, applies. And he like, got his bag down and like shuffled to the back. And the, the steward was like, I'm bringing you free drinks the entire flight. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> like, but it's well, like, you know, awesome. we need those things, so. <laughs> For sure, that's a great story. And it makes me think about how, how adults sometimes can be so uncomfortable with playing themselves, you know, yeah. and, and all these things. Con- and really conflict, we're not good with conflict, right? We're no. like, oh, ooh, like I was right. like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm really curious about um, what I read in the book about the randomized control trial. So you actually studied schools that implemented Playworks programs and compared them to schools that hadn't. What did you find? Yeah. Well, actually, trained professionals actually studied it. I was like, yes. Um, <laughs> and I just, yes. Uh, so we did, it was uh, Mathematica Policy Research and Stanford did the uh, did the pre-study. Uh, and it was, I will say just at the front, like it was nerve wracking, right? The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation funded it. It was a $2 million study over two years, 29 schools, 17 that got Playworks, 12 control schools that were guaranteed Playworks after the study was completed. Um, and, uh, you know, with an RCT, there's always this likelihood that there will be nothing of statistical significance. So it was a nail biter, but um, happily, there were four statistically significant findings. Uh, we uh, increased minutes of physical, of, of vigorous physical activity, which like if I had invented that instead of like, it's better than Viagra. I just like, it could have been the all time discovery of all time, right? Uh, we um, found that kids uh, reported feeling safer, not just at recess, but throughout the school day. Again, an essential precondition to learning. Um, uh, phys- uh, we recovered instructional time, uh, about 20 minutes per, cl- uh, per school day of instructional time where teachers weren't having to like resolve unresolved conflicts that were following kids back into the class. And then the one that got the biggest media attention was that teachers rated bullying in uh, playwork schools significantly um, lower than than at the non-playwork schools. Like it was in fact, one of the most statistically significant findings around bullying reduction ever documented in an RCT. And what was wild about that is that we are not um, really specifically, we don't really talk about bullying that much. Like we don't, we're not targeting bullying behaviors. It's not, it's sort of, it was this interesting um, byproduct. And 
I was saying this to you when we were talking earlier before the show, but I, I um, so RWJ funded the, uh, the, the RCT and we had the incredible guidance of the woman in charge of evaluation for them at the time, this woman, Laura Leviton. And when we got the findings, I was deeply relieved and thrilled. And um, I went to her, I'm like, Laura, what do you make of this? Like, these are like the kind of amazing findings, like they're really great. And, and Laura was the one who pointed out, she said, you know, it, it is really interesting. And, and I gotta say that it makes me think differently about play. But she said, I also made me really think about what I've seen working in public health and now coming here to work with you in education. And she said, if you use like seatbelts as an analogy, right? And, and prevention efforts around seatbelts, you've got the primary strategy, which is you install seatbelts in the car. And then you've got a secondary strategy where you're doing these like, you know, wear your seatbelt campaigns. And then you have a tertiary strategy where you give people tickets if they're not wearing their seatbelts. And she said, what I'm noticing in schools and education around prevention is that they jump right to the tertiary strategy. They're like, and, and so she said, like, when you look at the things that you all had findings on, it's really almost as if they're giving kids tickets for riding around in cars that don't even have seatbelts installed in the first place. And she said, I think play is the sort of equivalent of installing a safety belt. It is like the sort of foundational experience that makes all the other interventions possible. Yeah, and we've talked about that um, as far as um, from academic perspectives, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, in schools, our, our core instruction might not be super evidence-based. And then you have all these kids that need academic interventions and things. And so it's like, we we reserve, you know, we're, we're pulling all these small groups when if we had just addressed it um, in mass, you know, maybe we wouldn't have so many students that are in need. And so we've talked a lot about that from the academic perspective. Um, and we haven't really hit on that from the the kind of school-wide behavioral, um, social, emotional perspective as much, but that's that's so true, and it's so typical of <laughs> of education that we do that, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think you know, again, we are sort of dancing backwards and in heels, sort of. You know, but I just, yes, yeah, yeah. It strikes me that you were really speaking our language when when you shared that. Um, that makes so much sense to to school psychologists. Because nice, I gotta tell you, like often I'm not talking, I'm mostly not talking to school psychologists. So when I start to go off in these directions, people look at me a little kind of quizzically. And so it's nice to be like, oh good, this is this resonates. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I was thinking about um I lost it. I'm so sorry. I had a, <laughs> it will come back to me. But um when you oh I know it's back um, because, <laughs> because of the pandemic, I think uh, largely because of it and because of the ways, especially last year in Connecticut, we were in person all year, but in tiny little uh, small cohorts, very far apart, physically distanced with masks, with, you know, not eating in the cafeteria, even play was in the small cohort so that we weren't, you know, mixing too many groups. Um, we kind of took away a lot of the social reinforcement from a kid's perspective, you know, the, like the, the ability to kind of, you know, sit across from the cute kid in the other class that you, you like to talk to at lunch or, or, you know, just playing with outside of your classroom group. And, and we took a lot of that away. And so 
now that many of us are back in, in person, I, I feel like it's ever more important to have kids have fun at school. And, and certainly, you know, I think our teachers are all about that. You know, they're not trying to make kids miserable in their academics, but, but play is really a special time or, or just free time, recess or downtime is, is a really special um, time for kids when they're not having to work so hard and challenge them, challenge their minds with learning. Uh, it feels even more valuable and important as a tier one intervention um, now. But I would push back, right? Because I, I just would say, I, I don't like, there's a great uh, quote from Brian Sutton Smith that the opposite of um, play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. And I think like when, like if you watch a kid like who like becomes obsessed with learning how to make a layup, right? Or to dribble a soccer ball. Like I know my, my son will like dribble, uh, like, like, you know, he's not particularly good at it to start incessant dribbling outside. Like, and, and it's it's challenging. Like, he's not good at it to start, and yet he sticks with it. Um, or, you know, like, I, or mere, I just, there are a bunch of different activities where um, I, I think, there, it, I just think it's an interesting way to reframe. Like, how do, might we infuse play and, and that sort of, that chosen challenge, uh, into all learning and and, um, and to invite students in to um, add relevance and 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 yeah there are there are some things that we are held accountable to and maybe learning grammar is never ever going to be fun or like or long division I you know although long division is kind of you know there's ways to do it but um but I just think uh, I just don't think we should just completely wave the white flag that the, that that when fun can happen. Like I just know there are all these. Ex I think experiential learning can be fun across the. I, I, and I just think, I, I just believe there's a, another quote that Bernard Suit's definition of a game is the voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary challenge. And I I just like a voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary challenge. And I just think about the best times in my life, the things when I have learned the most about myself and the world around me have been in those moments when I have been in the midst of a, a voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary challenge of my own making. And I think that the extent to which we could make school mirror that uh, is just, it's a great, it's a great thing to aspire to at least. Awesome. I had a thought about uh, PE teachers. I mean, as school psychologists, I'm often in PE class watching and just seeing how, how students are interacting in, during those times and, and getting along. And, and, you know, it's a less structured than in the classroom and they kind of get into the, into the gym and they're, ah, it's kind of a free for all. And I've always been impressed with how our PE teachers, you know, navigate that and have things set up and um, have it structured. Uh, so do you see PE teachers as, as good resources that, you know, would be great to um, get the perspective on setting these things up. Oh yeah, and we um, so often uh, we we don't do PE. Like play and, and PE are very very different. Although we find that often when a playworks coach or a playworks program is working in um, some of our biggest proponents and biggest supporters, and especially um, often the playwork staff, it's their first job right out of college, and um, the PE teachers can be incredible mentors for like um, how to you know work with kids and 
Um, they teach them a lot and and they also appreciate what the playworks coach is doing with a big group of kids and it can be they can be very much coordinated to reinforce one another um and then some of our staff go on to become teachers of all stripes really but um because they have incredible classroom management skills but also a lot of them do become pe teachers and um and bring that sort of combination of playfulness to the, the teaching of kinesiology but i think um you know, we learn, we know it like intellectually that we learn in all these different ways, but for kids who are kinesthetic learners, incorporating uh, physical education instructors into figuring out how to reach the kind of kid who like seems to be fidgeting too much or like, you know, like they're just ways in which um, I just think a way that we might come back to school recognizing that we have to do things differently and that we have to function more as a team of educators caring about the whole child, I just feel like um, that 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 represents the greatest opportunity for us navigating this moment. Yeah, I, I like what you what you said about how play can be in in all parts interwoven into all parts of the day, and it made me think of I don't know if you're familiar with there was this very popular TED talk about gamification. And I think the researcher's name was McGonagall, but- Oh, Jane McGonagall, yeah. Yeah, did, yeah. Did, and it, that, it reminded me of her, what she yeah. said, like anything that we learn in a game-based way can be better stored, better learned, and just yeah. enjoyable. Yeah, no, and I think uh, it's interesting. Like I think play and design, like that kind of problem-solving approach, which is, and storytelling, right? Like I think, like often the the thing that's so cool about gamification, and um, I'm I'm sometimes asked to like uh, slam video games or like to be critical of online, but and I I I don't. I like they're great video games, and then there are not so great video games. Just like they're great in person games, and they're not so great in person games. But um, I think one of the things like fantasy play and the Dungeons and Dragons and the like all that stuff and the storytelling, like what's going on in the brain when you're playing those kinds of games. Like there is a, um, there is a, a, an, a, an absorbing quality to it. There is a, there is a, a, a learning of it that, that an experiencing of it, like it's real and like it happened to you in a way that you're much more likely to remember and to make meaning and sense of it and to be able to, to do all the stuff that interpretation and, and really that we're trying to get kids the skills around. So yeah, the gamification stuff is fascinating and um, yes. So do you also um, create play moments with adults? I think I was reading about that in the book. How do you do that? And do you, is that like within team meetings or within adult goals? How do you yeah, right. So super, like, so the answer is like, you know, how do you, you know, super respectfully, how do you do it? Super, like, I'm like really generous of spirit um, and, and lovingly. Uh, yeah, so we do, I mean, then we practice what we preach. So uh, all of our trainings with our own staff and then the trainings we do out in the world with um, adults, whether they're educators or folks at Boys and Girls Clubs, we have a really amazing partnership with Boys and Girls Clubs where we are training, working with them and having their staff actually take up our um, approaches to work with recesses in schools where, where some um, Boys and Girls Clubs coexist with schools and that's a cool opportunity. Um, but yeah, anytime, but then we also do corporate recesses because um, the thing about like you talk about play and it's easy to dismiss, right? Is this frivolous thing? And like, this is a very serious moment we're living through. And like, the stakes are really high on all sorts of different fronts. And like, 
and sometimes people look at me like, really, you want to talk about play right now? Like, what kind of an insensitive oaf are you? And I'm like, well, I'm a, I'm a loving insensitive oaf who's like really actually has had this experience of it making a difference. And um, so I think, again, with like grownups, I mentioned, I, I referenced earlier sort of the like, the cringeworthy sort of um, team building activities where like, and like, and Rachel, you're not the only person who's told me like, I, I had really painful recess experiences. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I'm trying to fix those for people. Like that's not, cause I think, um, Again, the choice piece, the like, um, the very intentionally designing experiences so that they um, are scaffolded, right? Like you build trust and rapport. You don't ask people to do a trust fall the first time they meet each other. Like you may never ask people to do a trust fall at all, honestly, you know? So like, so I think um, easing your way in um, and, and giving people a chance to have a lot of control about how much they share of themselves, right? Um, and to do it in a way that um, people get to like actually level how much silliness they embrace in any moment. Like, right, we, we uh, diversity of experience and just personality and comfort, um, meeting people where they are and, and, and really like great play activities make room for everybody and create opportunities for people to show up um, where they are in that moment, and if and if not, to also opt out. Like, so how do you intentionally design those kinds of experiences? So when we're working with grownups, um, we use humor and we invite people and to participate, but we also very consciously uh, level it up and always provide sort of escape hatches and um, and and again, it's choice and voice, right? Like, how do you create those opportunities for anybody who's a participant? Awesome. I'm looking for last minute questions because we're getting to the point um, where, you know, it's going to be time to wrap up. But I know that Rebecca had put in the chat that she wants you to come to, to NASP, right? <laughs> I talked to a whole bunch of school psychologists. I'm in. I would love to. I have all sorts of good games. We could do some assumption storming about school psychologists. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. It would be so fun. It's been yeah. pretty tough of a couple of years for school psychologists. So. Yeah. I think if we could just play at the conference, our national conference is in Boston this year. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And I would say, I would just say on behalf of the rest of us, um, I just want to say thank you to the school psychologists. Like we need you now more than ever. And um, I'm just working with the young adults and the older adults and the kids and the folks at schools that we serve. Um, schools right now, they're always this like profound institution. They're this incredible pillar of our democracy. But I think now more than ever, they are this critical place in our communities for helping us re-enter and rebuild and co-create um, community. And so, um, and school psychologists have just such a huge um, you know, role to play in making sure we do this in a healthy way that takes care of people and, and make sure that especially the most vulnerable among us feel safe and like they can handle this moment. So thank you. Thank you for that. This is very nice. Um, so yeah, as we're wrapping up, then I want to remind our viewers that our next podcast looks to be on 1017. And we have Dr. Byron McClure back to talk about um, social emotional learning and restorative circles. And I think that will be a really great one. Um, but yeah, Eric, I know you're going to close us out. 
with uh, with our sponsor message. So we'll do that and we'll say goodbye to everybody. Eric. Sounds good. Sure. Just a quick uh, big thank you to Jill Violet for speaking with us this evening. Uh, please check out her books. Um, uh, yes, Live Playworks <laughs> and uh, playworks.org, I believe, is your website. Yep. Okay. Yep. So please check out uh, all the great work she's doing and um, and re-listen to this. So sometimes while we're chatting and I'm looking in the chat box and all these things, I hear a great quote or a little gem and I go, all right, I didn't write it down, but I will push rewind and, and check it out again uh, later on. So please re-listen and, and there's some great things that Jill said uh, this evening. Uh, so very quickly, just a quick thank you to our sponsor as well. We want to again thank uh, Med Travelers for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that Med Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways that they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school psyched. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.